I have to offer a deep doctrinal correction from last week. Um, I made the mistake of transposing the name of Bob Seeger on top of the name of Pete Seeger. Um, the song Turn, Turn, Turn is actually written by Pete Seeger. Uh, Bob Seeger is much younger. Um, Pete is still around, I think, but he is, he is older. Um, but, uh, but so I did make that mistake. I was corrected by one of our, our music aficionados in the church. Uh, so I wanted to make sure we clarified uh, what we're talking about. This week we are, we are in the fourth part of a series. We're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and this is such a complicated uh, book, not, not complicated in how it's written, but complicated in the way we interpret it, that I want to just review some of the guidelines that we, we're approaching this book with. This, this book is, is written around the year 1000 BC, now, it, it may somewhere between 1000 and 900, but really what it is, is it is a collection of a tremendous amount of human wisdom. And you, because of that, you have to watch how it is written. Now, it, its function, its purpose, is to illuminate the failure of human wisdom in comparison to the wisdom of God. In fact, um, as we read through it, we see this refrain that comes over and over again, that, that human wisdom is emptiness and chasing the wind, or vanity and vexation of spirit, or, as we like to say in our Yiddish paraphrase, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And you could actually read the book of Ecclesiastes this way. Not that we're going to add to Scripture, but you could actually read it this way. Whenever you hit that line, it is vanity or it is emptiness, you can append to it a little prepositional phrase, without Christ. And if you add that, you will say, ah, okay, this is about human thinking. Now because of that, much of what is in Ecclesiastes sounds good. And, and I've had some conversations this week so uh, about this, and it is a difficult idea, so I want to make sure I clarify it. Um, and I've referred to it as half-truths because it sounds good from a human perspective. And if we, as many people try to do, interject kind of our understanding from the Scriptures into Ecclesiastes, we can make it fit into, our, into Scripture. But in reality, its function is to show the failure of human wisdom. So, for example, we see the observance in the first chapter of the cycles of nature, the sun rising, the sun setting, and water flowing down rivers, and then going to wherever it goes, and then flowing down the rivers again, and those kind of things. And Solomon says, wow, this is a big, huge cycle, isn't it awesome? And therefore, you are just insignificant. You're just a cog in the wheel without Christ. But when we add Christ in this scenario, we find that Jesus said that you actually are of great value to God, that you matter to Him, and through Christ you are able to be restored to Him. So we see the failure of human wisdom, which illuminates the wisdom of God. Chapter 3 begins with a poem. Uh, the first few verses of chapter 3, it is the poem that, that uh, Seeger borrowed and the birds recorded as turn, turn, turn. Um, and so the words are, wording is relatively familiar, but I want to give you a little bit of a background of it. I'm not going to dwell on it because the poem itself is not actually the point of this chapter. It's kind of the introduction. It's, it's, it's Solomon warming to his subject, and he throws this in there so that uh, you can kind of know what he's talking about. 
Now the poem, let's go ahead and read it. We'll read chapter 3, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. You can pull it out, open it about halfway. You should hit the book of Psalms. The next book is Proverbs. The book after that is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1. This is what the poem says. For there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time for hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, this poem is probably borrowed from Babylonian sources. Now, I'm going to say that because of a word, and forgive me if I geek for a moment, okay? Um, but there's a Hebrew word in chapter 3 and verse 1, the word season. The word is zaman. I'm sure that everybody's very excited about that. But this word is a, it's a, it's a Babylonian word. It's a word from Chaldean. And it did not enter Hebrew until much later in the history of Israel. So we're, conf- we're, we're put in kind of a situation. Either we take a word and we say, well, this book was written later than the, it says it was written. Or we say, perhaps this is borrowed. Now, we do know that Solomon, the writer of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, did like to borrow wisdom. The scriptures even say in the book of Proverbs, it says these are the Proverbs that he gathered, that he would bring them together and and he would take human wisdom and bring it together. And the character of this poem is very Babylonian. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Babylonians had two seasons, an emesh and an ent. Very excited about that, I know. Um... Because of where they live, the Babylonians lived in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, uh, the the area between those two rivers, there were two seasons. There was the season of the flood, and there was the season of the rest of your life. And when, when the rivers flooded, you didn't do much. Now, there is a passage, it's actually, um, there's a passage in Ecclesiastes that illustrates an idea of casting your bread upon the water, this idea of, of spreading seed during the flood season. But then you just, you, and nature kind of took care of itself and things would start to grow and then you would harvest your grain. It's the way it worked. And so they basically had two seasons, flood and grow. Flood and grow. They didn't really have a winter like we we have winter. It snows and everything. You ever seen snow in Iraq? It doesn't it doesn't snow in Iraq, which is where Mesopotamia is, um, except in the mountains. And this was the deal. So you had season of flood, season of everything else. And there's a duality in their their way of thinking. There's a duality also in this poem. What does he always? What is the rhythm of this poem? A time for this. A time for that. A time for this, a time for that. And the mesh, an ent. Alright? So this poem is basically borrowed to illustrate a point. To illustrate something that's going to be coming, being fleshed out later on. And here it comes. Here we go. Ready? Now remember, 
Don't make doctrine from Ecclesiastes. All right? This, what he has to say, um, it's going to sound good at first, and then he's going to twist away. Here we go. Ready? Verse 9. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Now, this pa- that, that verse right there gets borrowed by mission societies a lot. They say, they say well, God has put a desire for Him in the, the hearts of all men. And if you go, to the, go out to the foreign, foreign lands, you will see people who desire to meet God. And sometimes that is true. But watch what he says as he continues in verse 11. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Now, if you're not careful, you read that and you go, oh, well, so God just said, just be content. But look at what is actually said. Essentially what Solomon is saying, God built you with just enough knowledge of the eternal that you can never understand it. You know there's something bigger, you know there's something better, but you're going to be frustrated to no end trying to figure it out. So just eat and drink and be merry. Just, just, just celebrate you because you're never going to understand God. You're never going to grasp it. You're never going to be able to go anywhere beyond just these little hints. You know what? That is the God of the deist, the agnostic, the atheist. A God who is a tease. It says, here's something bigger, but you can't have it, it's mine. Here's all the great things that could happen, but for some reason I'm going to take them away. All the great stuff that you could have, but you're not going to have it. I'm going to give it to somebody else. You know... It's very easy when you talk with an atheist or an agnostic. Um, there aren't many deists in the world anymore. That was kind of a Thomas Jefferson thing. Um, but uh, you talk to them and, and they say, well, I don't believe God. I don't believe in God. And it is so easy to fall into the, the conversation of this, of trying to prove that God exists. There's a problem with that. And here is. The God that they don't believe in is not the God of the Bible. And this is, this is a very difficult thing for us to grasp. But when somebody says God, what do they mean by God? What do they mean? Do they mean this God who teases us and takes things away? Do we mean a God who is an evil person? Now, here, let me, let me give you a, an example of that. I'm going to read from... Uh, Richard Dawkins. Now, does anybody know who Richard Dawkins is? Richard Dawkins is an extremely, extremely well-worded, very rational atheist um, who absolutely despises God. He is is the classic example of, I don't believe God exists and I hate him for it, okay? This is is Richard Dawkins. So here is what Richard Dawkins said. Uh, to the Randolph Mackin Women's College in Lynchburg, Virginia in 2006. You ready? The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, 
unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, thirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. By the way, when he finished that statement, the crowd cheered. Because they said, yeah, we don't want to believe in a God like that. Now let me be honest. I don't want to believe in a God like that. That's a terrible person. And Richard Dawkins says, I will not believe in this God. This misogynistic, which was the word I thought I was going to struggle over, which is he hates women. Um, Homophobic, that he hates gay people. Uh, Racist, he hates pretty much everybody except his people. Kills children, which I'm kind of curious where he got that one. That one just kind of got randomly picked up. But he throws out all these things. He says he causes pestilence. He's he's mystistic. He's capricious. He says all these things. I hate this about God. And I got to be honest, if that was really the God of the Old Testament, I would really have a problem believing that God. But here's the deal: the God of the Old Testament sent Jesus to love and to lead and to heal and and to save. And you know what? If that is the God of the Old Testament, then clearly the understanding of the God of the Old Testament that sees these things is flawed. Oh, well, God said to the Israelites to drive out the, 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 uh, the Canaanites and destroy them. And isn't he a terrible person? And, and let me just borrow that one if you've ever encountered that when you've been in a college class they've said well this look at the god of the old testament he was terrible he was genocidal if you actually read the book of the book of genesis there's a moment when abraham is talking to god and god says to abraham he says i'm going to give you all this land it's yours by right but not right now and here's the reason because the the cup of wrath is not full you actually read what he says. He says that the 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 wrath or the the punishment of the um, the uh, the Amalekites, right? Amorites is the word he uses. Amorites. I, can, I always get those a words backwards. Um, is not full. Well, if God was capricious, genocidal, mean, hard, wouldn't he just wipe them out then? I mean, wouldn't he have just said, you know what, Abraham, raise an army and wipe them out? No. God says, no, 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 it's not time yet. But there will be a come a time. I know in my sovereign will, I know that there will come a time when these people will have filled up the wrath that is against them. And when that happens, I will use you as a testimony of my justice and my righteousness. I will, I will come to a moment when those people will be judged, but not right now. Now let me ask you a question. Anyone who says they deserve it, but not right now, is that a capricious, malevolent, mean person? Yeah, they deserve it, but not yet. I will tell you, by the way, if you actually look at the record, many of those who were Canaanites at that time period, when Israel came in, it appears, although we... we, we tend to overread. It appears that many of them actually were willing to convert, that they, they kind of became a part of the group. And the part that didn't, the Israelites dealt with for the next couple of hundred years because then they doubted whether God was really right or wrong about his judgment. But when we, when we look at it and we go, oh, well, God is a big mania in the Old Testament. Let's not forget that the Old Testament covers most of human history. 
Let's not forget that we are looking compressed into a, a few pages of a Bible. The first three quarters or so of the Bible. We are looking at maybe as much as 10,000 years of history. Most of us can't handle if somebody slights us, we can't handle it for 30 seconds. God took it for millennia. Not a Oh, God was misogynist. He hates women. I got to tell you, God's the one who made women. And he did a really good job. Somebody said, Amen, it was a woman. The men were like, yeah, and then they messed it up. No, they... But God, God, God doesn't hate people. They say, oh, God, you know, God is this and God is that. And, and I would challenge you, whenever somebody says to you, I don't believe in God, here is, here is a, a, a really, really good question to simply ask. Because we don't like to do this. We don't like to put the ball back in their court. We like to prove we're right. And Christians waste more time proving they're right if they would just... Uh, if they would just allow God to speak, I think he does a better job than we do. But um, simply ask this question. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Because I probably don't believe in him either. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. We would sit there and we say, well, they hate my God. They've got a false image of God. Now... Uh, let me, let me draw an illustration from, from life. How many of you have a friend who has a friend that they don't like? You know what I mean? And they talk to you about their friend like, oh man, I'm going to use Greg Beal as an example. Um, oh man, Greg Beal, you're not going to believe this guy. Oh, he is so annoying and he's loud and he's got a motorcycle and he fishes and he smells like fish guts whenever I see him. And da, 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 da. Right? No. That's why I'm using Greg. All right? And then you meet him and you get along with him. And you go, hey, it's not that bad. But all before, <laughs> all before that... All before that, you've got this image in your mind of who Greg is. Oh, he's a smelly, fishy guy. You know, I mean, he's awful. He's terrible. And you know what? If you build your entire belief structure based on, on that reputation, then and, and you actually encounter him and say, hey, it's not what I thought. We have a tendency to build our understanding of the God that atheists reject and agnostics reject based on hearsay about what they think. And we, we, we have an idea in our mind of what God is. And we say, oh, they're rejecting that. But when you actually talk with them, a lot of times what they're rejecting is the, the image of God that has been projected. That they, they see, they think, that they've heard. They don't really know who He is. And to be honest, when you start defending the idea of God without hearing their definition of God you begin to defend the image that you don't agree in, agree with. So that's kind of a side note. There's a little bit of practical knowledge. But here's this deal, this lurking God. And this is what Solomon is talking about, this God that kind of puts this hint. Look in verse, uh, verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. And that's true. God does it so that men will revere Him. Also not untrue. Verse 15, 
whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Now, there's some question about the translation of this, um, because the word call the past to account is actually that God will chase that which is driven away. That's actually the Hebrew uh, that underlies that. Trying to translate it's kind of difficult. It, it has more to that. But basically the argument is, is, is okay, God is eternal. G- everything God does lasts forever. So essentially, you're not really going to change anything. God's not really going to change anything for you. Just kind of go back to verse 13. Everyone eat, drink, find satisfaction in all your work. Now, he's going to catch you on this work thing, by the way, the toil thing. He says, find satisfaction in your toil. He throws it out there several times. And, and when you read it, you're kind of like, oh, that's cool. Until later in the book, when he actually goes ahead and says, and you should be happy that the king makes you a slave. He will. Everybody, you read that and you go, yeah, well, I mean, you should find satisfaction in your work. You should be okay. And then he, it, later on in the book, he actually does say that. He actually says, so you should be happy that a king wants the land to prosper and makes you work like a dog so that it will. You're like, wait, 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 wait a second. I'm okay with working, but I'm not okay with working so somebody else can make money. I'm okay with growing produce, but I'm not okay with it growing it so that somebody else can take it away. Give it to somebody else. There's a lot of applications of that in the modern world. We won't get into it. Let's keep going. Verse 15, verse 16. I saw something else under the sun. Now, I haven't talked about this before, but every time he uses this phrase, under the sun, he is about to show you something he has observed. That he has seen through the lens of humanity. Here it goes. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. Now hold up. Remember what he just said back in verse 14? I know that everything God does will endure forever. And everything God does, God does everything, right? God puts the hint of eternity and all this. So God's in control of everything. Blah, blah, blah. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. So who is he putting that on? Put it on God. He sees it in his life. He says, here's what we're supposed to believe, that God is eternal and God does everything and God is in control. And yet under the sun, what I see is that wickedness is in the place of judgment. What's God doing about that? In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. So I said in my mind, I mean, this can't possibly fit. This can't possibly work. I mean, God is in charge. So God will have to bring this to justice. Now, I will tell you that the scriptures do say that ultimately God will divide between the righteous and the unrighteous, that there will be a definite division. But Jesus, at one point in his ministry, tells a story because his disciples couldn't grasp the idea. They wanted Jesus to, to just kind of sit in council and go, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. And Jesus said to him, he said, let me tell you a story. There was a certain man who went into the fields and he sowed wheat and while, or corn. And while he was asleep, a wicked man came in and sowed tares or weeds in the midst and the next day, uh, or as the, as the food was growing, 
uh, his servants came to him and said, Master, uh, we saw in among all the wheat, we saw tares, we saw weeds. Do you want us to tear them out now? And Jesus said, or the, 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 the owner, he said, no, just wait till the harvest. Because if you go in now, you will destroy the good with the bad. He said, just wait. It will get sorted out. But you know what human wisdom says? In the place of wickedness, I see justice. In the place of justice, I see wickedness. Why hasn't God sorted this out? Isn't that the number one reason people struggle with the belief of God? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are there starving children in Africa? Why, uh, why is, is Thailand ripping, falling apart in riots right now? Why is, is, well, I was going to say, why is there oil leaking in the Gulf of Mexico? But that's because BP is incompetent. Um, why, why, you know, why are all of these, why does this happen? Uh, why, why are we, why do we look? I mean, I, 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 I don't watch the news on TV because I can't stand it on TV, but I go online and I check out the news sites and I see these stories. I saw a story this week about some guy who decided to punish his kid by stripping the boy, the kid was like six years old, stripping him naked and sticking him in the oven. Why does God let morons like that have children? Can't he strike them infertile or something? There, there is, I mean, I mean this, is, this is ridiculous. And we look at it and we go, why doesn't this happen? And so many people have asked that question. And Christianity has not had the answer. And they have said, well, if it doesn't have the answer, if your God can't explain this, I refuse to believe in him. Why is there wickedness in the place of justice? That's what Solomon's question is. And yet Jesus says, look, and if I could paraphrase what Jesus said with the parable of the wheat and tares, he said, when you step back and you look at it from God's point of view, and I know you can't because you're not God, but just trust me on this one. He says, when you look at it, you realize that if I were to try to root out all the wickedness, I would destroy the good as well. And I care too much about humanity. And I care too much about the man and women that I have created with the ability as agents to act in the world. I care too much about them to become a puppet master. I created them in my image. I want them to live in my image. But they don't. And that's terrible. And it breaks the heart of God. And you can read that in Jesus' statements. It brings pain to God to see that. But, that doesn't mean that God is not just. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love. It doesn't mean that God isn't compassionate. But it does mean that there is a terrible insidious weed that grows in God's field called sin. And sin corrupts and twists and breaks down and destroys. But under the sun, I said, Where God, will God bring judgment? Watch this. Because this is the naturalist, humanist response to this idea. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. 
Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. The the Hebrew word ruach, the idea of life and existence and spirit and soul. Man has no advantage over animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All came from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Man, this guy is manic, depressive, bipolar or something. But he is looking at it and he's going, so basically the only answer to the justice and righteousness thing, because if God were there, he would be good and he would make judgment and he doesn't. And the only answer that I can come up with is we're just a bunch of animals. We're created from the dust, just like the animals were created from the dust. We will go back to the dust. We, we just go through our lives, just do whatever works, just be mechanical. All that matters is the physical movement of life because you're just an animal. You know that this is what humanist evolution says? You do not believe in a God who sovereignly molded man that chose to to imbue man with a certain aspect that makes him different. I'm not going to pretend to know what that is that makes man different from animals. But we are essentially the same stuff. We are carbon-based life forms. We have similar physiology. We are built in similar ways. We operate in similar ways. We reproduce in similar ways. We require the same nutrients as animals. But there is something about us that makes us different. In the book of Genesis, and you don't need to turn there, it's the first book of the Bible, but in the book of Genesis there is a a narrative, a very, very poetic, beautiful writing about the creation of the world, and in it there is a very interesting thing that pervades the belief structure that Solomon seems to have forgotten about. In verse 24 of chapter 1 of Genesis, this is what Jesus said. Well, let's go to verse 20. God said, Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. Now, I want you to watch this and you tell me what's different between the three passages I read. So there's verse 20. Let the water teem with living creatures. Verse 24. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. What's the difference? You notice the difference? Say again, man in the image of God. He says in verse 20, let the water teem with living creatures, and living creatures seem to just come out of the water. In verse 24, it says, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. So the land just begins to produce living creatures. But what does does God say about man? He says, let us make man in our image. Directly. Now, 
you can talk about the science and everything. We're not worried about science here. What I want you to get is the image that is created in the mind from Genesis. And it is this, that when God created the land, He created it with the potential to give these living creatures. When God created the water, He created it with the potential for these living creatures to emerge from it. And there's argument about whether it took billions of years or it took days. It doesn't matter. Jesus or uh, uh, God uses the word yom. It means day. I'm content to just say it's a day. And, and he, but one way or the other, those things emerge. But when it comes time to make man, although man is made of the earth, the, the Hebrew word for Adam, Edom, it, it is the same word as earth. It is the same word as red. But when God got to making man, even though he made him out of the exact same stuff, he made him different. He made him special. And he gave him dominion. Now our worldviews, there are two competing worldviews in the world right now. One of them says, basically, hey man, you're a part of nature, you need to just go with the rhythm, get rid of all of your non-biodegradable stuff, and, and reduce your carbon imprint, and, and, and eat only plants, and, I don't know, become Al Gore. On the other side... On the other side of the conversation, there's a group of redneck Christians who walk around, and I don't mean to insult you if you're a redneck Christian, um, but they walk around and go, hey man, God gave us creed, and we're, supposed, we're given dominion, we should just kick the tar out of it, let's just beat it up, build those big smokestacks, do everything you can, run your polluting car, God, you did me. And in the middle is God who said, I gave you dominion. I gave you stewardship over this creation. I did not give you ownership over this creation. Don't mess it up. It's mine. I gave you resources to use them, but don't be a moron about the way you use them. But you don't need to... I mean, and no offense to any vegetarians in the room, okay? These guys are like, don't kill animals because animals have rights. That's right. They have a right to be well done. That's what they have a right to. <laughs> they, have a right to they have a right to a bun and mustard and ketchup. That's what they have a right to. They have a right to be sautéed. They have a right to be flambéed. They have a right to be filleted. They have a right to get in my belly. That's what they have a right to do. Now, it doesn't mean that I, that I advocate the buffalo hunters running across the Great Plains and just killing off the herds of buffalo for tongue, for skins, and leaving the bodies to rot. That's foolish. The killing of the passenger pigeons. There used to be... I was reading, I was reading a book that Ray Brown let me borrow about the Johnstown flood, and they were talking about flocks of passenger pigeons. If you don't know about passenger pigeons, at one point on the east coast of the United States, there were these flocks of these birds, these passenger pigeons, and the flocks would be miles long flying over your town. Can you imagine the sun being darkened by a flock of birds? The only problem with passenger pigeons is they are stupid beyond all belief. And the passenger pigeons would roost on a tree and guys would stand there with shotguns and blast them. And they would fly off. And then they would come back to the same tree. And they would blast them again. And then they would fly off and then come back to the same tree. Now clearly the argument was, and I'm not making this up, the argument at the time was God made these things stupid so that we could shoot them. That was actually the argument. It's in print. Guys like Audubon, the, guy, the great conservative, conservationist, uh, what's his first name, James? 
John, John James Audubon, he shot these things by the millions. He's like, oh, it's great. Great conservationist because they were stupid. You know, this is what, they weren't food. You know what they were used for? Feathers. Make hats. They're used for. Just killed them by the millions. They're extinct now. So are the, so are the, uh, the Carolina parakeet, which was hunted like that. Just wiped them out. Whole species. Foolishness. But here's the deal. We look at these two worldviews and we say, well, one says we're just part of creation. One says we're the gods of creation. And Jesus, the scriptures say, hey, man, this is my creation. And what does this have to do with Solomon? Well, here's the deal. Where is Solomon gone? Hey, man, we're just animals. Just do whatever. And where does that take us? Where does that take us? It takes us to basically a world where whatever works for you, you do it. You know, and people say, well, live and let live. You know, as long as they're not, they're, you know, they're not hurting anybody. And I, and I agree with that. As long as you're not hurting anybody. Right? I mean, as long as you're not hurting anybody, it doesn't matter what you do, right? Right? I mean, I mean it's, it's okay. I mean, you're, you're not hurting anybody. I mean, animals don't hurt anybody. I mean, sure that, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they might occasionally hurt somebody, but for the most part, they're okay. I mean, we, we don't, right? See, that's an animal mentality. They're not hurting anybody. They're not hurting anybody. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to interfere with, um, uh, classic one. I don't want to interfere with my child's decision-making patterns. I want them to be free agents. I'll tell you what, you can be a free agent to a certain extent, but if you have a son who decides to be a free agent with my daughter, I'm going to be a free agent with my gun. (laughs) That's the way it goes. There's checks and balances. There's a way that you're supposed to be. There is a code set by God in the behavior of mankind. Because we are special, we are not animals, and we are not gods, we are man. You know, one of the things that drives me absolutely nuts about our culture, total diatribe here, is that we do not respect the fact that God made us the way we are. Now, sin corrupts us, but we don't respect that God made human beings to be what we are. We either say we're gods, we can do our own thing, or we're animals, but we don't just say, hey man, we were made special. We were unique. We were made to be the messengers of God in creation. Instead, we either are consumed by our desires or consumed by our rule. And ultimately, those two things are really the same thing. And he says, ah, that's the way it should go. Now, here's the argument that that comes out of this, although you can't really catch it too terrible much. But here is, here is the thing when he says, there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. Guess what that means? Hey man, if you're a dog, you deserve to be leashed. If you're a, a, a bird, you deserve to fly. If you are a slave, you deserve to be a slave. If you are a master, you deserve to be a master. So you just do what you do. Because ultimately we're just animals anyway. Don't believe me? 
This verse was used in the 19th century to justify slavery in the South. You are appointed to a certain role, and that is your way. In churches in the South, in the early 1800s, the early 19th century, verses like this were used to say that because people of African extraction did not build the empires that went and took over other countries, they deserved, were appointed, were elected to be property. The KKK, by the way, also still believes that. Seen the documents that teach it. That's your place. You belong there. God made you that way. And so when slaves rebelled because they were being whipped and abused and raped, you know what the preachers in towns did? Why don't you accept where God has put you? How dare you violate God's order? You know, that still exists in America today. Every time somebody says that you shouldn't be in a relationship with somebody from another race because God made you different. Now, they come up with a different justification for it. And I'm not talking about Protestants and Catholics, Marion. Right? That's not a mixed marriage. That's a insanity. But um, <laughs> what, I'm talking about, what I'm talking about is, is race. Oh, well, you know, I mean, they're different. I mean, they're, they're different. Oh, those, those Asians, they've got a different culture. Or, or those, those, you know, it's funny. In the American culture, we have no, no problem with all the names for everybody except African Americans. We're still not sure how to refer to them. I just call them people. It works. Ariel refers to them as brown people. I don't know whether that's offensive or not. It's a good description, so she goes with it. Um, but, but we look at it and we go, and we look at it, you know, maybe in our own enlightenment, we go, I can't believe people are like that. But that happens all the time. It's very prevalent in our world. That you get looked down upon because you dared to cross a line because God created people to be one way or the other, not to be both. By the way, race is a totally artificial human, human invention. It has nothing to do with the Bible. has nothing to do with the way God invented it. And I refuse to refer to people that way. I'm using it as an illustration. Where did that come from? But anyway, let's talk a little bit about Jesus, shall we? And we'll end with what he has to say. Mark chapter 5. Here we go, ready? They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. What do we see here? An animal. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Now, I love this image because Mark, Mark kind of tells it in a different order, but the idea is Jesus gets out of the boat and goes, Come out of him, you evil spirit. And the dude comes running up, Leave me alone. 
Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. What are pigs? Animals. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, the evil spirits came out, went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. The pig herders go and complain. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. The people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The animal had become a man. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I love that. Cast out demons, get thrown out. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. But what do we see here? We see an animal. It was an animal. Consumed by the desires of this demon. However, this demon had taken charge. And the indication that kind of comes out of this is that the people in this area, they were not so against demon possession. They kind of thought it was cool. And in the ancient world, this is not uncommon. If he had been a Greek, they would have been going to him asking him questions. The oracle at, Adel- at Delphi, that was what it was. It was this, this, these women who got hopped up on drugs and, were, and they would twist around and make all kinds of crazy things and people go ask them questions. Should I marry her or shouldn't I? <laughs> okay, I won't. That's what was going on. They loved this stuff. But when Jesus comes in the presence of the animal, He turns him into a man. And the man does not want to leave Jesus. Are we animals? We're men and women, specially created by God, specially gifted by God, specially saved and touched by the life of Jesus Christ renewed and reanimated and reliving, resurrected, walking amongst the dead. And the world wants to say to you, you're an animal. Human wisdom says you're an animal. Human wisdom says you just, you're, you're, you're just a, a bundle of passions and desires. Just either live them out or, or, or do whatever you want. Just, just this is who we are. But in the presence of Jesus, animals become men. And when we journey in the presence of Jesus, we are men. You know, you know that this is the this is the the issue with humanity, and people people often talk about this. You know, where do the problems in the world come from? And and James actually says they come from inside us. They come from inside our heart. They come from the sin that corrupts us and breaks us down. And and we. And that's in the, the epistle of James it's in the New Testament if you want to look it up. But, but this, 
we look at it and we go, oh, you know, this is what the natural man, this, this na- these natural desires, they, they corrupt and they're wrong, and they are. Because the world, big, big W, the, the, the culture says, you just do whatever you want, you meet your own desires. But Christ says, and Jesus says, I'm going to rewind that for a second. I lost my thought. It was really good. Oh, man. It's like floating over here somewhere, but I can't. Anyways, here's the deal. Jesus takes animals and turns them into men. Where Solomon stops, he stops because there's no Jesus in the scenario. Now, he will get to this. He will get eventually to the Creator. He eventually will get to the relationship of man and God. But in the meantime, what he's saying to us basically is don't believe the lie that you're just a bundle of your desires and you're out of control. And don't believe the lie that God just wants to tease you with the eternal. What God wants to do is He wants to turn animals into men. And in His presence, animals become men. And when animals become men, they become men like God wanted them to be. They become women like God wanted them to be. Not like sin has turned them into. Not like the world tells you that you're supposed to be. And out of that, God builds a kingdom. You ever been told, nah, God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't heal. God wouldn't lead. God wouldn't change. God wouldn't transform. God wouldn't mend. God wouldn't break down walls. Just accept it. It's just the way it is. You ever been told that you will never be able to overcome something? You're never going to get beyond that. You're never going to deal with that. You're not qualified for that. You can't be that. So just fit into your little hole and be content. Fit into, be a cog in the wheel. Slave, stay slave. God turns animals into men. It's unfinished on purpose. Now you get to come back to next week. Let's have a word of prayer. Jesus, when we we look at our human wisdom, even our best thoughts and our best ideas and The best we have to offer is man. It's incomplete. It's broken. And when when we try to create your kingdom, when we try to develop a code of our own of our own actions and our own will and our own desires it always falls short and it took the wisest man in the world to show that to us and it took the greatest man in the world Jesus to show us the difference
And Father, even right now, there are so many thoughts rolling around in my head, and I, I, I don't know if, if even we've done justice to Your Word today. But we would ask that You would continue to make us into the men and women You created us to be. And that we would not be drawn apart, broken down by the men and women, the, the ideas of men and women that the world and, and our humanity and sin wants us to be. And on the flip side, God, help us to destroy the false image of You that exists in the hearts and minds of so many people who think they are rejecting You and really are just rejecting this false idea. This false, fatalist, humanist, broken idea. God, we ask that You, above all things, would be the only thing. That we would pursue You and submit to Your Word and Your direction. That we would live the life not that we think Jesus wants us to live, but the life that Jesus has called us to. Lord, that everything else will fade away as emptiness, chasing the wind. In a minute, and I don't do this all the time, but in a minute the, the band is going to be singing, leading us in the song, You're My All in All. And as we rise... I would challenge you to do this. It's very easy when we're singing um, to simply say, uh, oh, we're singing a song. Maybe there's something in your life that needs to be changed. Maybe you would say, uh, this morning you would say, look, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Christ. The commitment is one that you make with Jesus. The Bible word is repentance, and it's very simple. It is a turning toward Jesus and away from my desires. It is a turning toward Jesus' wisdom, toward Jesus' power, and away from my own power and my own wisdom. Because who I am is made by sin. Who Jesus has called me to be is made by God's righteousness and His Spirit. Maybe there are things that we need to leave that have become our all, have consumed us, and we have become animals driven by desires and passions rather than being men and women who are led by Christ. So as we pray, we make this prayer, a, 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 this song, a prayer that Christ will truly be all in all. And maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to to, to stay seated and pray. Maybe you can pray during the song, whatever you need to do. But we would ask that we make this a, a moment of prayer, a moment of decision, a moment of change. Not everybody in the room needs it. Maybe there's no one in the room that needs it. But we would pursue Christ with everything and all that we are. Let's pray together as we sing. You are my all in all.